As I mentioned, Pastor Banks was gracious to allow me to pick the passage we'd be focusing on once he finished his series in Haggai. And uh, 2 Timothy 2 is one of those passages that for the past year or so has uh, been challenging me and uh, challenging me in a couple ways personally because there's a a high list of expectations for those who would call themselves a Christian for those who would call themselves a child of the king and be enlisted in his army but there's also a very clear mission for those individuals that I found in 2 Timothy 2 um, I've been working through uh, doctoral studies at Baptist Bible Seminary student or seminary uh, as a student there, and uh, when I went in, my focus with that degree was to develop myself further as a biblical counselor. And uh, there are some required classes you have to take regardless of your area of focus and study, and one of those classes was on biblical leadership, and uh, that class was very pivotal and reshifting what I felt like God was ultimately wanting me to do with my life. Uh, I love biblical counseling. I've been actually in the counseling field for almost 13 years now. Uh, eight years with Foundations and about five years with Scranton Counseling Center before I worked with Foundations Christian Counseling. And I've enjoyed that time. I enjoyed the opportunity. One thing that always attracted me to biblical counseling was the opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one in an intimate circle with individuals and, and specifically by bringing the Word of God into play in the various situations that they might be going through. And so I've enjoyed that model of discipleship uh, over the years, but I realized that, you know, God's Scripture ultimately calls us to make disciple-makers, not just to disciple people, but to disciple them in a way that they will then be able to go on and take the gospel and equip others with the gospel and continue that process of making disciples. And it was actually that realization in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 that really spoke into my life and challenged me to consider the focus uh, of my ministry. And uh, it was also a lot of Pastor Banks' influence on challenging me to consider uh, pursuing pastoral ministry. And when I was voted on to become an elder, I felt like that was a very affirming direction towards that. And as uh, the opportunity presented itself, I felt that God was leading me in that direction. And I'm honored. In, in many sense, I would say that the opportunity that you have extended to me is the highest calling I could aspire to. And so um, I appreciate that and don't want to take it for granted and want to prove to be faithful towards this calling. And so that's one reason we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 2. Um, but to give us some context before we jump into the first seven verses where we'll be spending most of our time this morning, uh, 2 Timothy implies that there was a 1 Timothy, right? <laughs> and uh, 1 Timothy uh, was most likely written during Paul's fourth missionary trip. Now, that should catch you off guard a little bit. Because if you read Acts, there's only three missionary trips that Paul goes on. All right? And we talked about those. In fact, I got to preach on Acts 20 back in November when we were launching and talking about this men's spiritual leadership retreat. And we focused in on Paul's 
third missionary journey, and how he spent five years in the city of Ephesus, okay, investing into a dozen or two dozen men who within a three-year period of time were taking the gospel out through all of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, and they were having such an impact with the gospel that it was changing the economics of the idol makers, and it was changing the accepted religions and idols that the people had worshipped for so long that it created uh, some discord amongst the business people who produced these idols. And they said, we got to do something about this. If we don't do something about this, Paul and his disciples, they're going to turn the entire world upside down. Man, to be accused of such a thing. You know, I don't think he realized that's a great compliment for Paul and his mission in taking the gospel out. And so Paul was at a very highlight point of his ministry, and it was just exploding. Um, but as we know, that third missionary journey wraps up, and he makes plans to go back to Jerusalem. And this is kind of where I left off in the message uh, back in November. And as he makes plans to go back to Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders are also making plans on how they can capture him, how they can seize him and ultimately kill him. Uh, there have been multiple attempts on Paul's life already. And so they wanted to make sure that they were successful in this. And it was by God's grace that he intervened in Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers jumped in on the mob that was destined to kill Paul. And seized him up because God wasn't done with him yet. He still had a fourth missionary journey <laughs> and many, many more imprisonments. And so in that process, he spends five years going from one Roman jail to a Jewish jail, shipped over to Rome. Five years in transition of jail cells and being contained. And it's my belief that during those five years, he had a faithful friend with him the entire time. And that would have been Timothy. In fact, when you follow all the different references for Timothy, the only time you see Timothy leaving Paul's side is after his first Roman imprisonment, Paul sends him to his beloved disciples in Ephesus. He trusted the gem of his ministry to his most faithful friend and servant, Timothy. And so when we start looking at 2 Timothy, I want us to have this perspective because what happens is Paul was released from the Roman imprisonment. We, we read about that at the end of Acts. He's looking favorable and, and believing he's going to be released. And a number of the epistles he wrote to Titus and, and 1 Timothy and others suggest that he was out traveling again after his first Roman imprisonment. Um, some people even speculate that he went over to Spain and then came down to Crete and spent some more time in Asia Minor or Turkey visiting Ephesus and then over into Macedonia and visited the churches of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and Corinth. And it was sometime between his release in about 62 AD and his second Roman imprisonment, maybe around 65 or 66 AD, that we start to see 2 Timothy after a second imprisonment be written. And if you contrast it, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you would see a very significant difference in the author's writing. First Timothy is geared very much towards, all right, Timothy, I'm entrusting this church to you. This is how you are to oversee the church. This is how you are to structure the church. This is how you are to minister to the church. But when we jump into 2 Timothy, and what you'll see, particularly in chapter 2, is now he's 
talking more directly and personally to Timothy. Because what we're going to find out is Paul knows that the end is near for him. His second Roman imprisonment is nothing like the first. The first one, he could welcome guests, all right? He was in like a house. It was more like house arrest, probably a window. It was probably decent accommodation because he was a Roman citizen, all right? People were coming. He had friends staying with him. Uh, in fact, if you, if you had an Airbnb listing, all right, his first imprisonment would have been somewhat attractive. Like, come enjoy this historic Roman, you know, center and, and, and enjoy some of the culture and the fellowship and the foods, perhaps. But when you look at his second imprisonment, it's nothing like that. No one's with him. He's in a cell, probably below ground or, or somewhere dark, wet, dingy. He doesn't have supplies. And it, it's a very different story. And, and the Roman... The Roman environment towards the Jews at that point was much more hostile. They were blaming the Christians particularly for problems associated to that, that they were experiencing in the Roman Empire. So the climate has changed for Paul. And that's kind of where we come into chapter 2. Paul is giving words to his faithful friend Timothy. And I want to take some time to now read through those first seven verses and just kind of work through them. And see what God has to share with us this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul starts this second chapter of Timothy with a title for him. My child. Sometimes when we're given a task, we can separate the task we've received from the person who's delivered it. And we can just think about the task and forget about the relationship that binds us to that task. Paul and Timothy most likely served together for about 20 years. And a large percentage of that time, they were side by side. Where Paul slept, Timothy slept. Where Paul ate, Timothy ate. Where Paul was persecuted, Timothy was there. In fact, it's interesting, during his missionary journey, one of Paul's earlier missionary journeys with Barnabas, they're going into Lystra, where Paul first meets Timothy and his family. And you want to know how Paul was received there? He was stoned. <laughs> they thought they stoned him to death. They didn't do a good enough job because either Christ brought him back to death or Paul is just a stubborn man who has a mission and won't die. 
Have you ever known people who just won't stop? They won't give up. They're persistent. God likes soldiers who are persistent in pursuing him and his mission. So when we're looking at the relationship between Paul and Timothy, understand that there are strong affections that bind Timothy to the task, to the charge that we'll be looking at, that Paul gives to him. I once heard someone talk about bonds and relationships, and they talked about the importance of quantity and quality. And they said you can't have quality time together without quantity. All right? Quantity is the initial step in producing quality of time. As I think about time and 20 years, you know, what relationships, what friendships do I have that extend beyond 20 years? It's primarily my siblings and my parents. Karen and I will be celebrating 13 years of being married, not quite at 20, so Paul and Timothy had us beat there uh, in their relationship, but... There are others who I know who have superseded that. My parents are celebrating their 41st anniversary this year. And uh, someone recently celebrated their 50th anniversary. And that idea of quantity and quality, the way I kind of think about that, is that quantity records the time together. But it's the quality that gives us something to celebrate about that time together. And that's why those two things are so important. And that's why we have to understand the type of relationship that Paul and Timothy shared. Paul was most likely dependent upon Timothy, like a child dependent upon his parents for food while he was imprisoned. In fact, originally when Paul was on his missionary trips with Timothy, Timothy was most likely dependent upon Paul for his food because it was Paul's tent-making business that supplied for his disciples so that they had shelter, so that they had food. So here you see a relationship where both of them have cared for one another for their physical needs, for their relational needs, emotional needs, and, and all those elements that they have shared together. And it's within this context of Paul's bond with Timothy that Paul gives Timothy this charge. Okay, And I think that's an important lesson for us. Don't rush so quickly to the charge that you don't take time to first connect with the people you're going to give this charge to. Jesus did that, right? Jesus spent time with the people. He built relationship with them, and then he gave them the great commission. Okay, And you see the same thing here in Paul, and I think you'd see the same thing repeated throughout history. Paul's charge to Timothy, we see in verse 2 particularly. And it says here in verse 2 that what you have heard from me... Actually, you know what? It starts off in verse 1. The first charge is there after he says, you then my child, it's be strengthened by the grace. That's actually a charge. You know, Paul is wise in that he knows, Timothy, the charge, the mission I'm about to send you on is impossible for you to complete through your own strength through your own ability. Even though I've witnessed your faithfulness to me, I'm going to tell you what is to come in your future is far greater than anything you've experienced with me. And I'm not going to be there to walk alongside you in that process. You now need to pick up the mantle and you need to lead. You need to be 
the rock for others to look towards. And so he says, you're going to need to be strengthened by the grace. And that grace that he's challenging Timothy to be strengthened with is the same grace that has the power to take someone who is dead and breathe life into them. So much life that Jesus refers to it as eternal life. Life that cannot be corrupted. That's the power of the grace of God that was secured through the death, burial, resurrection, and the promise of a second return. And so this is the grace we're talking about that Timothy will need and depend upon and rely upon in order to do what? It goes on in verse 2. He says, you know, what you have heard from me, everything I've shared, everything you've observed in the presence of many witnesses. I didn't do this in secret. Many people. Paul frequently had a group traveling with him, sometimes a dozen men or more traveling with him where he was instructing them and enlisting them and sending them out on tasks and projects. He says, you've observed this in the presence of many witnesses. You've, you've observed my ministry and how I've entrusted to faithful men the task to be able to teach others so that the gospel might go on. Timothy now is being called to pick up that mantle so that he will take what he has observed of Paul's life and continue to replicate it into the life of other men and other disciples so that they may continue to teach others as well. I heard one preacher reference this as an unbroken chain that continues to this day and can be traced all the way back to Christ. Every disciple is connected to another disciple who shared the gospel with them. The parents, a friend, a pastor, a co-worker. And that person is connected to another individual who shared the gospel with them. And this chain has no broken links all the way back to Christ. Think about that. Every single one of us are linked through a personal relationship of someone who shared the gospel with us all the way back to when the gospel was first proclaimed and taken out to the nations by the apostles. An unbroken chain. Think about the strength of that. We've got many of them going right here in Tabernacle. Many of them going in Honesdale. Many of them going on throughout the world. And this unbroken chain is the testimony and the witness of men and women being faithful to this challenge to continue to invest into people who will make disciples. That's the fruit. The chains are the fruit of this mission that Paul reiterates to Timothy. So the charge is to be strengthened by the grace to accomplish this ministry. I've uh, had to read a lot of books on leadership going through class because my degree's in leadership. And they frequently will talk about vision and mission statements and all those kind of things and From a biblical standpoint, they say that God has given us our mission and our vision in Scripture. The mission is to go out and make disciples. The vision is of all the nations. All right? Now, what I particularly like in here is that this charge that God has given us the grace to accomplish, um, it's not all on my shoulders to reach the entire world. Paul did not primarily minister to the masses, all right? 
And his charge to Timothy is not to go out there and start a megachurch. All right? Jesus' ministry was not primarily to the masses. Sure, he entertained crowds sometimes of 20,000. But what did he do after preaching and ministering to them? He sent them away, and he would go with his 12. Some people estimate that 90% of Jesus' ministry focused on small group, intimate circles like his disciples. 90%. All right? He was not looking to gather a massive crowd to put him on the throne in Jerusalem. In fact, he resisted that. That's one reason he abandoned the masses. This wasn't his time. That wasn't his plan. They didn't get it. We've all seen how masses can easily be swayed, right? You feed them, <laughs> and they're for you, and they're ready to make you a king. But as soon as you challenge them to give up what they desire the most, they abandon you, and their loyalty goes to the next person who promises them what they want. They're not interested in what God wants. Our country is not interested in what God wants. All right? We are led by leaders who are interested in their own agenda. And they have to try to pitch it to the masses in a way that appeals to the individual's agenda. They're not interested in the gospel. They're not interested in this mission or charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And so, recognized with this charge of equipping other faithful men, he's not saying we have to do it to 100,000 people. The model we see throughout church history and in the scriptures is maybe a dozen. Okay? Focus on investing in a dozen people and make sure that they're well-equipped to continue that work. And what happens, you've all heard the idea of multiplication. You know, so if I invest into 12, disciple them, earnestly invest into long-term relationships and help them get to a mature place in their faith. And if they, each one of those, invest into 12 more, well, now you start to understand where those chains came from, right? And how those chains have invaded every country on this road and continue to go into unreached people groups and places because there are men taking the word of God because they have been equipped and mentored and discipled to make disciples. There's a, a warning that comes with this reality as well. You know, as I thought about this and, and as we look at verse 3 as well, and it starts this analogy, this situation about a soldier of Christ and I want us to focus on the elements that a soldier, he sees a clear mission, okay? They're not wandering aimlessly. They have a mission. There's a vision. There's usually a strategy. They've debriefed. Alpha team here, you know, beta team here. There, there's a plan. There's a strategy in place, okay? I believe that tabernacle should also have a plan in place for our mission. And for our vision, we need to strategize. We need to put together a plan. We need to enlist people because Christ has called us to do such. And but that would be an aspect of my dedication to Tabernacle is to focus on equipping individuals, whether it's in their home, in the community, at work, here in church, wherever we are, that we are equipping one another for the ministry to make disciples. 
in that process, that we would all be enlisted as a soldier of Christ, focused on the mission at hand. But the first warning, you know, you think about it. Um, if you were trying to enlist people, you'd probably, like, pitch something really exciting, like, like a sign-on bonus, right? Like, you sign up today, $5,000 sign-on bonus, right? That's exciting. But, uh, but Paul, his, his talking points in verse uh, 3 is, is this. He says that he wants to enlist a bunch of soldiers to share in his suffering. <laughs> All right? Sign up for suffering. You know, like, it, this isn't going to be like the lines in Disney World. You're not going to have to wait. Two, hey, that's a positive thing. You don't have to wait. Two and a half hours in a line to sign up for suffering, right? It's a very short line. Very few people are running to suffer. No, but I've learned something in the counseling process. You don't have to look for suffering. Very few of us ever choose suffering, all right? Suffering chooses us. The question we're left with is how are we going to respond to that suffering, all right? You won't escape suffering. I think all of us have probably been around long enough to know we're not escaping suffering. The question is, are we going to seek to alleviate our suffering through our own means, or are we going to seek to fulfill Christ's suffering by turning to him and depending upon his grace and honoring him and seeking to please him? In fact, verse 3 goes on into verse 4. It's, you know, verse 3 says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then 4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. All right? When suffering comes to our doorsteps, do we try to find the quickest route out? Or do we focus on how do I please my master? How do I please the one who's enlisted me as a soldier in Christ's army? How do I please him? One of the ways we please him is by prioritizing his commands. It says, don't get entangled. A soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits. He stays focused on the mission. He prioritizes the mission. Another way to think about it is a soldier is single-minded. All right, he's single-minded, single-focused. And I would imagine he has good reason to do, to be so. I've never been on a battlefield, okay? But I know there have been individuals in our congregation that have experienced that. But when you're in active combat, I can imagine, at least Hollywood helps me imagine, that when you're under the pressure of enemy fire... <laughs> You're very focused on where that fire is coming from, okay? If someone was shooting at me, they would have my attention, <laughs> all right? <laughs> and no, no ideas there, Care. You don't have to shoot at me to get my attention. <laughs> there are other ways. I'm willing to get my attention <laughs> without shooting at me. Uh, but the reality is, is Christ is telling us that if we're a soldier, we have people shooting at us. Are we aware that the enemy is even shooting at us? In fact, I would... Maybe take that analogy one step forward. When you're an army, not only is the enemy shooting at you, but sometimes there's friendly fire. Sometimes there's conflict and disagreement on how we should accomplish the next mission. There can be anarchy within your own team. There can be people afraid. And they can hurt you without actually wanting to hurt you. We 
have to realize we're in an active combat zone. The enemy's after us, and sometimes our friends accidentally hurt us too, all right? So we need to be ready for that, and we need to be able to distinguish friendly fire versus enemy fire, and not be so quickly offended when someone who loves us, who shares in our mission, who's on the same team, lets off a loose round and it nicks us, okay? Or hits us in the leg or something, all right? We don't retaliate at them like they're the enemy. We recognize that they're on our team, and we try to figure that out. We try to work that through. That's what it means to be on the same team, all right? That's what distinguishes us from those who are against us, is that we work through our issues together, not simply for our sake, but because Christ calls us into a ministry of reconciliation. Christ calls us into a ministry of living by peace with one another as much as possible. And so suffering will come. How are we going to respond to that suffering? I imagine that the devil is going to focus his fire on those who are trying to make disciples and not the Christians who are hiding under the table for their own safety. See, if he can intimidate Christians by fear, then he can neutralize the process of that chain continuing to grow. He wants to break that link. If he can just break that link for one generation, he's been successful because God has determined to build his church through the proclamation of the gospel, and he uses us to proclaim the gospel. So if he can just get us to be silenced for one generation, the mission of the church has failed. The gospel will not go out, and there will be no one making disciples. Aren't you glad that as fearful of people as we are, that Christ recognized that, and he says that I won't let my church fail. So we're not dependent upon our ability. Remember, it's the power of God's grace, not our own strength and power. It's the power of God's grace that propels us forward in this process. And he has guaranteed that his church will prevail. And so that's the faith, that's the confidence we have as we continue to march forward, enduring through the suffering, not backing down, moving forward, responding to the challenge. We need to prepare ourselves for suffering and persecution today, all right? Don't wait for it to come. If you wait, you won't be ready. You need to be prepared today. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. It doesn't say, hey, keep this stored away, and when you need it, get it out. No, put it on now. You need all of it now because the enemy is a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. The gospel continues to go out, and disciples are made because the grace of Jesus Christ is the means for responding to the challenge of disciple-making. Our self-will, our personal abilities, it's not because I'm good at something in particular. It's our faithfulness that ultimately makes us effective. It's our humility that makes us teachable. So there is a call. There's a challenge. We have to choose whether we're going to respond to the call, to the mission, to be enlisted by our commander, and whether we're going to count the cost, whether we're going to recognize the challenge and step up to the suffering. There's also an aspect in this process of a soldier of Christ is faithful in his mission. 
when we think about the faithfulness in this process, it goes on to another analogy of an athlete. Now, I've never been a soldier, but I have competed in athletics. In fact, in high school, um, I tried out for football, but I didn't get much activity on the field. Uh, they found out I was really good at running fast, and I could catch the ball pretty well. But the problem was is that we had no weight limit in our high school group, and we had some big people. And if they hit me right, I could lose 10 yards just from the impact. <laughs> so if I wasn't in the end zone, it was trouble, <laughs> okay? But our football coach was also our cross-country and track coach, and he saw potential in me. He said, you know what, Jeremy? Why don't we give football a break? Why don't you try out for track and cross-country? Let's see how that goes. He didn't know I was born in Kenya, Africa. Kenyans are known for something. They're known to be able to run for a long, long time and not get tired. I didn't realize I had this ability until they just sent me out running with the cross-country team and I came back. <laughs> they would send us out running an hour and a half every weekday after school. And on weekends, we were supposed to run for three hours. It wasn't hard. It just came natural. And our team, we had, a, thankfully, a group of gifted people. Our team was committed. They practiced. We ran together. Even if our coach actually, I don't even remember our coach really coaching us much. He just knew because he had to do other things. He, he oversaw a lot of different elements. But he knew that his cross-country team was committed and mature and disciplined. And we would just set up our own practices. We would run together. We would coach each other. The more experienced athletes would mentor the younger athletes. And we went on to compete at the state level every single year. In Canada, it's the provincial competitions, not state. Uh, and, and so there was a sense of commitment. And when we applied ourselves, there was a sense that we could accomplish something great. And so when we look into this analogy, he's playing off of the soldier, now looking into the athlete. Uh, in, in verse 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. All right? Think about that. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. For the Olympics, which I'm sure Paul was thinking about, the, the Olympics with the Greeks was very important. In fact, they had to commit to 10 months of disciplined training and dieting in order to qualify to even compete. They took an oath. If they violated their practice and their diet, they were disqualified. In fact, the term that they used was a castaway. You were cast away. You were thrown to the side. You were no good. You were garbage if you broke your oath and your discipline practice. They were more concerned with the discipline and the integrity of an athlete than they were about how well they competed or placed. There's something for us to learn about that. You know, we would like to believe that sports in America promotes good sportsmanship. One thing I know for sure is that Christ encourages good sportsmanship because he focuses here on integrity, on following the rules, on playing by the rules. That requires someone to be disciplined, okay? 
to have a regiment, to have a plan in place. As members of Tabernacle Bible Church, we enter into a covenant. In fact, Tabernacle Bible Church is the only church I know where we read our covenant out loud together on a regular basis. I've never been to a church, nor do I know of a church that does that. Recommitting ourselves to the rules that we are playing by. But it also creates accountability. That if I witness someone violating those rules, I am now welcomed to confront them in that process. Because we all want to be qualified in this process. We don't want to be disqualified, which is a real concern and a possibility. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, we won't go there now, but Paul warns Timothy that he could become disqualified if he didn't run faithfully and with integrity. Character is important. It's important in the list of qualifications as an elder, but it's important for all Christians are to be people of character and integrity. We ought to be able to practice what we preach and be confident about that. Another aspect that Paul talks about when it comes to an athlete is to run to win. Today we run to get a participation trophy, right? As long as you run or walk fast or just do your best. We'll show up, you know. You don't have to practice with us every time. Just, just show up, all right, and you'll get a participation trophy. In fact, we even like to skew the rules, right and wrong, it's kind of objective, matter of perspective, whether you get caught or not. not. Not with God. That wasn't what Jesus enlisted his disciples with. That's not what Paul enlisted Timothy with. There is an objective right and wrong. We go to scripture. That's the rules which we play by. And there will be winners. Paul says he runs to win. Okay? So this isn't a, just a trophy participation Activity. We are to apply ourselves like the Olympics, preparing for it. If we practice these things, then it will be self-evident to all those who live with us. All right? If you're preparing for a competition, people know. My friend does ultra marathons. He runs 100 miles. In fact, he recently completed 155 miles nonstop. He had to wake up at 4 a.m. on work days to get enough running in before he went to work, okay? And he gave up the majority of his weekend to run his long-distance runs leading up to his race. Do we have that same kind of commitment for Christ? I like to sleep at 4 a.m. <laughs> Maybe if I can learn to pray in my sleep. <laughs> but... Something to think about, something challenging. Is there anything else that you're seeking to work harder towards than Christ himself and for Christ? Our good soldier remains honorable in that process. He's disciplined. He has integrity. I like this last analogy. In verse 6, it says that it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The hardworking farmer. Now, I'm not a farmer by trade. My family wouldn't get fed if I was. But I enjoy gardening. All right? I enjoy seeing things grow. I didn't realize how much work it was until I first started getting into that process. And I remember when Kara and I would start them off by seed. You'd have to get the right humidity to make sure that they germinated, the right soil, 
lots of lights, the grow lights, and you had to water them regularly. We used a syringe to water each and individual one. It was time, I had to wake up early to do this before I went to work, okay? There's all these aspects of laboring hard. And that was just to get it big enough so that I could plant it outside in the garden. And that's when the real battle begins. There are bugs. There are droughts. There's poison in the soil. All right? Like, there are so many things that can kill those little plants. And you're out there trying to defend them. If their leaves get too wet for too long, they develop a disease. Bugs go after them. You have to put stuff. It's just... It's constant, all for the hopes that I'll get one tomato out of that plant. <laughs> like, if, if we're willing to sacrifice that much for a couple of vegetables that most of us don't even like to eat, how much more should we labor like a hard-working farmer toiling? I, I like James 4 talks about this patient farmer. And when I first read that, I thought the patient farmer you know, plants the seed, and then he goes up on his rocking chair on the porch, just rocks until the harvest comes in. No, the farmer is constantly in that field trying to keep that plant growing so that, and he's doing all that work, trusting that God's going to bring the fruit, right? It's out of faith, once again, that we labor. And one of the great blessings we have in laboring for the sake of Christ is recognizing that his reward is guaranteed. There's not, your 401 does not come with a guarantee, okay? Nothing in life comes with a guarantee except for what Christ proclaims in his word. He promises that we will be fruitful if we are faithful. He promises this in, um, in, for, in 2 Peter 1. He talks about do these things and you won't be unfruitful, Okay? Uh, he promises it in John 15. When he says, abide in me as the vine, and you will bear much fruit. I'll produce the fruit in you. All right? He goes on and on to talk about all the ways he will produce fruit within us. So when we are laboring as a farmer, we are working hard. We are toiling in the field. Okay? And we are also looking forward to a guaranteed reward, a certain victory. So my question and challenge for us is, are we willing to be spent? Are we willing to be poured out like an offering on the altar to be consumed by the flames for the mission of Christ? And if we are willing to commit to that, there is something great in store for you. And sometimes... We think that it's kind of selfish for us to want a reward from Christ, right? Isn't that kind of self-serving? Is that really what Christ wants for us? That's because you don't understand the reward. I, I, I just want to, as we close, I just want to read a few passages that kind of capture this idea of the reward that is stored up for us in Christ. I see this in Second. Thessalonians 2, which the whole chapter reiterates. It talks about suffering and toil. In fact, in, in verse 7, it says how we are to nurture. The farmer who nurtures the plant, the shepherd who nurtures the flock, who cares for it. We know about the shepherd who goes and looks for the lost sheep, right? He says, but we, we were gentle. Paul's talking to the Thessalonians. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, affectionately desirous of you, 
ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We're to give of ourselves sacrificially, to be poured out, to be spent for you, because you have become very dear to us. What mother, I mean, childbirth is evidence that a mother is willing to sacrifice for something that she holds very dear, all right? Do we turn towards one another with that same affection? In fact, verse 9 goes on in 2 Thessalonians 2. It says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. This sounds just like 2 Timothy. We worked night and day that we might not be burdened to any of you while proclaiming to you the gospel of God. You are a witness in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. They had integrity, okay? For you know how like a father, so you describe the mother, the father is with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy, compete, follow the rules, demonstrate faithfulness, And then in verse 19 of that chapter, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at this coming? Is it not you? Do you see what Paul's saying? His reward, his joy, is to see Timothy and others he invested in to continue the work of the ministry. That sounds very self-serving, right? Paul's in it just for himself, right? That's the reward. If that doesn't motivate us to do the work of the ministry, then we're doing it for the wrong reason. We compete for a crown. Not a crown of gold that we can boast about. Okay? We compete for a crown of disciples we have made who will continue the work of Christ because we have been gifted through his grace and want to see his grace continued to empower others to take the gospel out. I like 3 John talks about it too. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. Paul is consistent with what his reward is, with what he's fighting for, what he's suffering for, and why he's doing it, his motive ultimately in that process. 1 Corinthians 3 goes on. talks about God giving the growth. We sow, we water, but God gives the growth. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Colossians is another passage I think of often. Colossians 1, and, and this is a verse that has been on my heart, and we'll kind of close with this. Colossians 1 talks about rejoicing and suffering as well. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. We are stewards entrusted with the gospel. We are to make God's word fully known. And then in verse 28 it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want two things I want you to catch as we finish up. First, that Paul's desire, his vision, was to see that all those he discipled be matured. Not just get saved. He wants them out there saving other souls for Christ. 
okay? He wasn't satisfied with children. He wanted adults in the faith. He wanted mature individuals. Are we satisfied with too little? All right? I want more than one tomato. I want a dozen on that plant, okay? I want a great harvest, all right? Don't be satisfied with a little. But this, this is really interesting in verse 29. He says, for this I toil, again, the working hard like a farmer, struggling with all. Then he messes up with some pronouns here. I, I, I realize this. All right, he says, struggling with all his energy. Wait, wait, what? You're working hard on someone else's energy? It's like, that sounds like cheating. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul, whose energy? Well, within the context, we know it's Christ. Once again, it comes full circle. Where's the power? Where's the energy? Where's the strength that's in the grace of God? Not in Paul. As we compete, if we think we're doing great, the Bible teaches us that we're probably in last place. But if we're humble and think we're doing awful, there's a good chance we might actually be in first place, right? Because that's the biblical principle. Those who are last are first. Stay humble. Stay teachable. Stay dependent upon Christ. Let us work hard at the ministry he has called us to, that we might too receive the words, well done, my good and faithful servant.